0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark HelpsMeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing, and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today's Spirit in Action guest is Valerie Brown, and her new book is Hope Leans Forward, Teaching from a Black Buddhist and Quaker. Valerie's book shares a number of Buddhist Quaker teachings and insights which can help anyone lead a more fulfilled and complete life. These lessons are embodied in the lives of many different people, but especially in Valerie's life experience growing up Afro-Cuban Jamaican in a single-parent household in Brooklyn, New York. Valerie's intelligence and drive led to a successful two-decade career as a lawyer-lobbyist before she found a need to change profession and work to become a teacher and executive coach and the founder of Lead Smart Coaching. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's show. Valerie joins us today from Pennsylvania on Zoom. Valerie, thanks so much for taking the time to join me for Spirit in Action.
1: Mark, I'm so delighted to be here and to be with not only you, but with your audience.
0: When did you first start writing Hope Leans Forward?
1: The book started officially, probably in 2019. It grew out of the result of a series of personal crisis, traumas that I was experiencing that began in 2017, actually 2016. With the death of my father in 2017, one of my eldest brothers had a heart transplant and I supported him through that. 2018 and 2019 brought the end of my marriage, a divorce in 2020, February, the death of my eldest brother, suicide of his former wife, and then the death of his current wife at the time. In 2021, there was a hurricane, the result of climate crisis that destroyed a part of my house. This was September 1st, 2021. And then in April of last year, 2022, my youngest brother died. So there were just a series, almost without interruption, of these crises that kept happening to me. And the book was the result of trying to make sense of it.
0: That's a lot of pain for the heart, even for someone who's, as a Buddhist, has practiced to see suffering, I think, differently than the average American does. But part of where the reason I was asking when the book started was because you recount these crises that happen, these deep, impactful experiences that you had. My sense was that you were already for quite a while doing the kind of teaching, the Dharma teaching and other teaching that you do. So I think you were already formed in some way, but writing the book actually, is this part of further development within yourself of a new faith, a transformed faith, a deepened faith? And I'm not sure faith is the right word, but please correct me when I'm wrong.
1: Well, again, thank you for the question. Hope Leans Forward was my third book so I was not a stranger to writing. The first book I wrote was The Road That Teaches, lessons in transformation through travel. And it was through going on solo pilgrimages early in life that I, trying to figure out who I am, what is my contribution to the world, and the kind of jumble of identity crisis, midlife crisis, and so forth. And to make sense out of what I was seeing in the world. And then my second book was written with Dr. Kirsten Olson, was The Mindful School Leader, Practices to Transform Your Leadership in Life. I was working at the time with many, many school leaders, superintendents of schools, principals, assistant principals, and trying to make sense of what they were saying to me. I was working as an executive coach and still am, My clients primarily were these school leaders. They all wanted mindfulness for the students. They all wanted mindfulness for the teachers. But when I asked them about themselves, I got crickets, radio silence. And I became really curious about that. So, you know, it's obvious that in order to have a mindful school, you need not just the students and not just the teachers. But you need the people who are sweeping the floors and the people who are in the boardrooms also included in that equation. So Hope Leans Forward was the result of these crises that I had already reiterated. And it was, you know, a kind of book that I could not not write.
0: A major part of it, I think, is that you had to write it for yourself. You take on a journey in Hope Leans Forward. One piece that you haven't mentioned or didn't mention explicitly, you talk about in the book, only really in passing in this book, is your history as a lawyer lobbyist. My first wife, by the way, went to law school, finished law school, and she decided she didn't like lawyers, so she never worked as that. She managed food co-ops and other things like that. She's incredibly talented and intelligent but she chose not to be in the law. You evidently were able to do that for a while. I was not clear, however, exactly what being a lawyer lobbyist was.
1: So yes, my career uh, for more than 20 years was as a lawyer. I'm still a lawyer. I'm still admitted to practice law. But instead of going to a courtroom I went to the halls of Congress or the state capitol to advocate for various policy changes that my clients wanted. I went to college and studied political science in undergraduate and graduate school and also in law school. And so the track was already laid to move into this kind of work.
0: One of the ways that my mind was honed and some of my talents developed was in debate and forensics in high school and college. Halfway through college, I stopped participating in debate because I decided it took me away from my soul. It taught me to argue for the sake of arguing, for the sake of winning. And I'm sure there's plenty of good lawyers and debaters who can be faithful to that. But I found for me, it was a temptation away from that Your transition from being a lawyer lobbyist to being the kind of coach and the kind of support and advocacy and teaching work that you do, what led to that from your point of view?
1: Well, I went to law school, and I talk about this in the book. I went to law school primarily out of fear. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and Brooklyn was not the fancy place it is today. It was the kind of place that people wanted to get out of not go into. There weren't latte shops and yoga studios on every corner. It was a place that was very rough. And so I wanted to get out of that kind of environment of poverty and violence and drugs. And going to law school sounded like a good idea to do that. And I was largely motivated by, as I said, fear and money. You know, I didn't want to be poor, poor meaning financially impoverished. I grew up that way. My family grew up on public assistance. I grew up in a single parent household. So I knew firsthand and up close what it was not to have enough food and to have to struggle for everything in life, for financial things in life. And many things cost money. And so going to law school and becoming a lawyer was largely driven by that. I left home at 18. My mother passed away when I was 16, and my father was really not part of the picture. After she died and he came back into the scene, I wasn't able to live with him. So I left home. I got a job at Burger King, and I went to school because it was free, City University had a special program that allowed anyone who graduated from high school to go to college free of charge. And that's how I went to college. Even though I was an A student in high school, I was traumatized. The only parent that I knew that was capable of taking care of me was dead. And I was left with a parent who was, at that time, extremely violent and rageful. I could not live in that environment. I knew I was going to die. So I felt I had no other choice other than to leave, even though at 18, that's the last thing I wanted to do was to set out on my own, but I did. From Burger King, I made my way very slowly through undergraduate school and graduate school and then law school, and from law school and to the big and important job as a lobbyist and a lawyer, until I realized in doing this job for, as I said, more than 20 years that while it took care of all of my financial needs, I felt that it was killing my soul. There was a part of me that was being crushed. And I started going on pilgrimages alone, solo, to try to figure that out. And that's what the first book was about, The Road That Teaches, just trying to figure out what had happened to me. It was really through a chance meeting of Thich Han that my life changed. And I tell the story in the book that one day I was in my eldest brother's apartment in New York. He opened the New York Times, the physical paper, and there was a photograph of Thich Nhat Hanh, this Zen Buddhist master of meditation. And Nhat Hanh was offering a public talk right down the street from where we were living, only a few hundred feet. And so my brother, knowing absolutely nothing about Thich Nhat Hanh or Buddhism, and not being a religious or spiritual person, but a deeply grounded person and a deeply insightful person. He said to me, and he, of course, he knew me very well, he said, you might want to go down, just go on down and listen to this person. And I was quite skeptical. I did. I walked into the talk with hundreds of other people, and everything that Tai or Thich Nhat Hanh said was the direct opposite of how I was living my life at the time. I walked out of the talk and I thought, this isn't for me. Again, extremely skeptical. Because of course, if I were to believe what Thich Han was saying, it would mean that virtually everything that I had done to create the life I had up until that point was on extremely shaky ground. As I said, I went to school to make money. I wanted to get out of Brooklyn. I was driven by fear. And I had within me the anger and the rage, the hatred from my pack, from my father. And so to believe what Thich Nhat Han was saying meant that everything that I had been living was in deep trouble. I was in deep trouble. So I was skeptical. But on that day a seed was planted and I began to practice mindfulness meditation with the community of course at that time as a lawyer and a lobbyist practicing meditation was not like it is today this was 27 years ago i was a closet meditator i would practice at night or on the weekends i would not tell my work colleagues no one would believe it they would think i'm weird or something like that and especially being a lawyer and a lobbyist and a black person And so I just kept practicing very diligently. Wherever Ty went, I went. And slowly, slowly, I began to change from the inside out. People began to say to me, well, gee, you you don't seem like a lawyer. And I would say, what's the matter with you? I could not see what they were seeing. But over time, I realized that that identity that I had built up and carefully constructed had to be reconstructed into something else.
0: That's quite a journey. I would mention, by the way, Valerie, that I also had something of a strange journey. One thing you named was, you know, you want to make money, but there's also a question of the meeting place of the talents that are salable in the world, right? When I got back from living in Africa for two years as Peace Corps volunteer, I needed to have some money to continue some education I was doing. So I started as a computer programmer consultant, which I did for 20, 25 years before a clearness committee helped me make the transition to Northern Spirit Radio. I have a feeling you have a wealth of talents. You could go many directions, but there is a special talent it takes to be an effective lawyer lobbyist. Those talents are still there. Do they translate into the work that you're doing now?
1: Yes, of course. So all of the skills, all of the Talents that were required to be a lobbyist and that were required to be a lobbyist lawyer are exactly the skills that I use today in my everyday life as a Dharma teacher, as an executive coach, facilitating retreats with people. All of it is used, but it's used in a different way. Instead of advocating to convince somebody, persuade someone of the rightness of my position, I flip it. I seek first to understand the other person's position, seek first to understand their meaning making. And through that process, influence is built. There's nothing that influences a person more than taking sincere and genuine interest in them. And so that is a skill. And as a lobbyist, uh, we're trained to persuade other people. Not necessarily how to do it, but that's the job of a lobbyist, to get a person to do something they otherwise would not do, or they may be reluctant to do, or to bring people to do something, to sign something, to say something, to act in some way. That is the job of persuasion, right? And so that is the job of a lobbyist. And the job of a dharma teacher is to alleviate suffering to transform help people transform their suffering well the only way to help another person to transform their suffering is to myself be familiar with suffering which i am and then to be able to transform the suffering within myself i didn't say get rid of it but i said be in a different relationship with it and it's the same thing in in lobbying you're seeking to persuade to transform something. And it's how one goes about doing it. So there are are comparable skills. The motivation is different, right? I'm not seeking to get something from somebody. The motivation is bodhicitta, which is a mind and a heart resting in love. And I don't mean something esoteric. I mean kindness and care and respect, right? I don't have an agenda, is simply to be with people in a place of understanding, to see another person, not to turn away from another person's suffering, but to say, yeah, I see this, it's really hard.
0: Is it your sense, Valerie, that people value Valerie Brown's work in the same way that they did when you were a lawyer lobbyist? Again, my experience as a computer programmer consultant, which I did for so many decades, was, yeah, they want me, they want to pay, here, I can throw $10,000, $20,000 at you, no problem. The work that I do as Northern Spirit Radio is considerably less attractive for for money. So if I wanted to get out of Brooklyn or wherever you were, I have a sense that the world out there didn't value it. And when you talk about your reaction when you saw Thich Nhat Hanh, when you heard him speak, I'm wondering if the Valerie Brown of 27 years ago would have been valuing, would have put the price down. Now, you started the mindfulness meditation. You started some of the work, but... There's a big price to pay in terms of outward recognition by the world. So I'm just wondering about what happened for you.
1: Yeah, my values changed, (laughs) to be just really frank. Yeah, I mean, I was motivated by money. And it's not just money, greed, money. It was money because my life was as a child, one of four children of a single parent, where food, just getting basic needs, were hard to meet. I know what it's like not to have enough food. And I didn't want to live like that. That's a very hard life. And so I didn't want that. It's not like I was just trying to accumulate money. I mean, it was just like, I don't want to live like that. So part of it was that. And so part of the going into lobbying and being a lawyer was to live a life where, you know, you don't want too much, you don't want too little. That was too little uh, growing up. And I wouldn't say that being a lawyer lobbyist was too much. It met my financial needs, for sure. But, you know, was it comparable to what a Dharma teacher is going to get paid? (laughs) No. (laughs) You know, but I don't need that, because that's not my value anymore. My value was to make money so that I could have a better financial footing, you know, some financial security, even a little bit. And that's why I stayed in the job for the years I did. And I didn't have a safety net. I didn't have parents who said, here you go, here's 20 grand for you to go to college, (laughs) you know, or whatever, (laughs) you know, that was not available to me. I worked at Burger King. So, yes, my values changed over time such that I began to understand what is enough and what is the cost of work, the way I was working, working, you know, many hours, the stress of work, the anxiety of work, the losing myself, not having any space or time for myself, and what that was doing to me at some point in time i could say maybe i could put a dollar on what that means and so at some point i with great trepidation and great fear i did leave the jo- the high paying job i was terrified because i had a pension i had medical insurance that is a lot to leave and walk away from and you know it wasn't an easy decision but there was something motivating me more than the fear, and what was bigger than the fear was living a life that was truly meaningful and Why am I here? Was I born and put on this earth to be a lawyer lobbyist to get out of brooklyn? I don't think so. There was something more, and I felt that the something more was to transform the suffering that had happened to me and to show other people through my life, a path, a way. We say as Quakers, way opens, right? The way to be open. And so today I have nonprofit clients. I've had clients who are universities and uh, wonderful institutions and individuals and all kinds of groups. And they come to me I think because they're seeking a person who has had their feet in the thick of real life and have had to transform that. I'm not starry-eyed about any of this. I didn't grow up with parents who were religious and all of this stuff. I had the rough and tumble of it, and not just growing up in Brooklyn, but as a lobbyist you know, this very hard tangle in, of all places in New Jersey, politics in New Jersey is not for the timid. This is a, a very rough and tumble world. How can I bring this sense of peace and inner compassion to never lose sight of that? And now what's happened is that simply by my presence, by the way I speak and by, The way I am in the world, people feel Thai. And so I feel that Thai is here with me and speaks through me and is present.
0: And again, folks, Tai is also known as Thich Nhat Hanh, to many of us who haven't studied with him, as Valerie Brown has. You are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. And Valerie's best website, I think to get a hold of her, is valeriebrown.us. That's linked on northernspiritradio.org in case you have trouble tracking it down. Norton Spirit Radio has been doing the work of trying to lift up the lives and work of world healers for the last 17 and a half years. And Valerie Brown is one of them. Her latest book of three is Hope Leans Forward, Braving Your Way Towards Simplicity, Awakening and Peace. She joins us. Wait, Philadelphia, where are you?
1: I'm in New Hope, Pennsylvania. This is the traditional lands of the Lenape Nation. Specifically, this is an area called Equatong, which means spring in the bushes.
0: So she's joining us today. We're talking about her book, Hope Leans Forward. And I'm reviewing a lot of things that you will certainly find in the book or in her previous two books. I'm trying to actually enrich some of my understanding of Valerie as we talk as well. By the way, Valerie, I find a lot of connection with your experience, although mine is very different I mean, you're Afro-Cuban, Jamaican background. I'm Irish-British Isles mutt, but I'm one of 12 kids with alcoholic parents and all the difficulties that come attendant on that. I have the advantage of white privilege because of the color of my skin. There's a lot of barriers I didn't have to surmount, although if you looked at the lives of my brothers and sisters, you might say the future is can be just as bleak. So any, in any case, I, I think I understand some of the struggles and some of the need to find some certainty in life. But the thing that I especially want to address with you, Valerie, is what led you to do what I would call world healing work. I was not at all clear if your work as a lawyer lobbyist was world healing work, which it could have been. I mean, you can choose to do that work. There are are many lawyers who I know do just wonderful work lobbying for really valid things, as opposed to something that just has a dollar sign connected with it. What's your sense of that background and where you are now?
1: I would say that initially the client that I represented, which was a large group of lawyers in New Jersey, I would say half the time the the issues that I advocated on, they were particular to lawyers about liability. Some of it, I think, served the public good. I really do believe that, that it it truly did. It would enhance the rights of individuals as opposed to diminishing people's rights, rights to bring a lawsuit or to have clarity about a contract that they're signing. You know, changing the laws in such a way that it would would actually enhance the rights of the consumer of individuals. I also represented the legal aid society, and so people who were by nature like me, who had been, who were low income, impoverished. And so that work of trying to get funding for the most vulnerable children the disabled people. This was all very, very good work, work that I can look back on and say, I am so, so glad that I was able to help some people through my advocacy. Also, my last big client before really transitioning to the work that I do now was a group, a consortium of lawyers and therapists and financial planners who got together to try to change the laws to allow people whose marriages were not working out to be able to divorce in an amicable way it's called a collaborative divorce you know and divorce as and I've been divorced twice <laughs> divorce can be a very toxic experience that leaves a person scarred for the rest of their life, and not just financially scarred. That's one part of it, rather emotionally scarred. And so it was a great honor to work to change the laws, to allow people to resolve their marital disputes in a constructive and a collaborative way. As
0: you're doing that work, you've already made the acquaintance of, already started meditation, Thich Nhat Hanh, and so on. My first marriage ended in divorce after about five years, and one of the blessings we had was we were married under the Care of Milwaukee Friends meeting, and when we went through our divorce, the insecurity, the fears that are attendant on that were with us. And so our clearness committee for marriage, most of those folks were, folks were available to act, to sit with us as we were processing our divorce and kept love at the center The work that you were doing advocating for divorce that was not acrimonious, not painful, not damaging to people. What tools were you able to draw on for that? Having a therapist present is one thing one can do.
1: Yeah. So first, I I would say that you're extraordinarily lucky and fortunate to find that you're in a Quaker meeting where people really understand and know how to do a clearness committee. One of the things that I have done or that I'm doing is I teach at a place called Pendle Hill, which is a Quaker retreat center outside of Philadelphia. And as a teacher there for the last 17 years, I teach the clearness committee and to Quakers and non-Quakers. I've written a Pendle Hill pamphlet called Coming to the Light specifically on the clearness committee. And I can say from my own personal experience, having sat through many clearness committees, dozens and dozens and dozens, teaching this (laughs) and actually giving a talk about the clearness committee in, of all places, next week, Monday, Harvard Business. (laughs)
0: Oh, really? Wow.
1: (laughs) They actually want to know about the clearness committee. So even Harvard Business School is interested in the clearness committee, you know, biggest shock of my life, or at least one of the biggest shocks, but yes, they called me up to say, "Can you talk with us about the clearness committee?" So I just want to underscore that your experience is highly unusual that very often you know the clearness committee's the practice of the clearness committee really requires a tremendous amount of skill and care, and I'm Celebrating that you were able to go through this process and be supported by the meeting in such a way. I was also married under the care of meeting, but I can say that it would not have been the same situation for me. You know, good hearts for the people, but the capacity to really do this, I would question that, you know, but well meaning. So that's a long way around to say that. What I was doing in advocating for collaborative divorce is again, we change the world, you know, we change our environment one conversation at a time, one person at a time. And so, to the extent that I can do something different with this person that I've been living with, that I can make a different choice, I can choose differently for myself, I can create a different relationship. And that's going to affect not just me, but other people that I come in contact with, right? My children, the people that I, I care about in my life and just the people that I'm, I encounter. So I do think that the work that I'm doing, the writing, touching many people, not just writing books, but writing essays and the t- talks, you know, throughout the country, all of this, the teachings is hopefully touching one person at a time. And I think that that helps to change the world. And honestly, there's scarcely a week that goes by that I don't get a letter or a phone call or something from somebody who says that they have been changed by something that happened or something they read. And that is so, so very meaningful for me, right? And this really goes to the principle of interbeing. Interbeing meaning we are interconnected. And that word interbeing was coined by Thich Nhat Hanh. It means that we're, we're interconnected. So what happens to me sitting here outside of Philadelphia is going to affect you. And what happens to you is going to affect me. We know this in a very deep way, as a result of COVID 19.
0: And you'll find many clues and tools and insights in Valerie Brown's book, Hope Leans Forward, teachings from a black Buddhist and Quaker. As you talked, Valerie, about the fact that people don't know how to do clearness committee, even within Quaker groups, uh, they can do them marginally or sometimes very well i've, I've been blessed not only with what happened with my marriage but i was blessed by a clearness committee which helped me transition to become northern spirit radio i never actually studied with parker palmer but i have a feeling that he was a very significant influence for you so you've got both these very wonderful influences from the buddhist world but parker palmer who i've interviewed a few times yeah, he evidently was very influential for you.
1: Yes, he was. I met Parker in 2007 or 8. I became a facilitator with the Center for Courage and Renewal, and Parker of course was one of the co-founders of the center. But I knew about Parker because I started attending retreats at a Quaker retreat center called Pendle Hill outside of Philadelphia. And Parker had been the executive director or dean of students there at Pendle Hill for something like 11 years. And Parker says this very often in his book, Hidden Wholeness, he he talks about the profound impact that Pendle Hill had on him. It was life-changing. And I would certainly agree with that. I've been a teacher at Pendle Hill. I was just there this past weekend. I've been a teacher there for 17 years. And the sense of uh, radical hospitality, the sense of radical equality of stewardship and care is profound there. It is a model that is present in other places, but it's certainly there in Pendle Hill. And I'm incredibly grateful to the community there that has stewarded this place.
0: During COVID, I understand that they were sharing via Zoom their meetings for worship. I don't know if that continues to this day, a half an hour meeting for worship each morning.
1: They have a half hour meeting for worship, 8.30 to 9 a.m. East Coast time. And that continues to this day every day.
0: There's so many ways to heal the world, and I'm glad you've made the transition. You say that for your book, Hope Leans Forward, it's a response to where is hope now? You went through so many crises in your own life. The end of your marriage, the death of your brother, the destruction of your home by Hurricane Ida. This book is a response to where is hope now? And I'm pretty sure most Americans who are listening to this want the hope in, you know, 25 words or less, but that doesn't work, does it? Do you have a better sense now for yourself of where hope is? Because clearly you had to go through so much to, to write this book.
1: You know, it's kind of ironic that probably the primary job of a Dharmacharya, someone who is ordained to teach the Dharma is to transform suffering, which means you need to be well acquainted with it before you can transform it. (laughs) And so it's kind of ironic that I'm really familiar with suffering. Ironically, I'm really, really familiar with all kinds of suffering, death, natural disasters, all of this stuff, suicide. And I'm not comparing my suffering with someone else's suffering. And I don't necessarily believe that all suffering is redemptive. Sometimes suffering just sucks. It's terrible. Yeah, you know, there's that part of it too. What I know now is the role of hope and hope not as in wishful thinking, an optimistic state of mind for a positive outcome. That's not, I had that in my marriage Uh, No, (laughs) that does not work. And I'm not saying don't be optimistic and don't think positively. What I'm talking about here is the cultivation of hope as a complex emotion for the fragility, the ambiguity, and the uncertainty of our time. Hope that is really akin to more of a skill where there is a sense of groundedness and clarity and effort and ease. This is what I've been talking about in my retreats and presentations and such on the book.
0: And again, the book is Hope Leans Forward, Teachings from a Black Buddhist Quaker, Braving Your Way Toward Simplicity, Awakening, and Peace by Valerie Brown, website ValerieBrown.us, the link's on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Since it's in the title of your book, Hope Leans Forward, hope i have my own relationship to that word and one of the things that i found that's made my life considerably better it's maybe buddhist maybe quaker maybe it's just markian i don't know it's that i find that i have a great amount of hope i have relatively little expectation a lot of people can't pull those two apart so what do you mean when you say that hope is a skill
1: to be able to tease apart hope Meaning an optimistic state of mind, an optimistic perspective, right? But the other part of that is for a positive outcome, which is where expectation comes in and where it gets tangled up. When we focus or overly focus or overvalue the expectation part of it, this sets up what Buddhists call a cycle of samsara or craving. We're seeking that which we think is outside of ourselves. And so part of a a lot of the work, actually, is to see that what we're seeking, we may already have within us, whatever that is, greater peace, greater understanding, greater resourcefulness, to find that already within ourselves so that we don't have to feel that we're chasing it down, that we're somehow incomplete, that sets up this cycle of continually craving something that's outside of ourselves. So to begin to find that which we're seeking within ourselves, that helps to address this overcharged expectation that drives the craving, samsara. And so that's one one piece of it and then the other piece of what you've described is an optimistic state of mind well yeah that's that's good <laughs> you know we need an optimistic state of mind but hope is actually from my perspective much more uh, nuanced and complex than just optimism we need wisdom when we engage in hope meaning that to choose wisely right As Joanna Macy says, we need to be active, not like this passive engagement, sitting back and waiting for things to come to us. We need to have some effort and energy. But how much? How much efforting are we doing? Is there some what Buddhists call aimlessness? So it needs to be effort and ease. And this is where the skill comes in. There needs to be an element of wisdom, right? We need to be able to see clearly. As Rebecca Solnit, the writer, describes, urgency and hope coexist because often the stakes are high. It matters to us. And so we need to have a sense of capacity to hold the urgency as well as the vision for a possible tomorrow. And all of this, as Joan Halifax describes, rests on impermanence and uncertainty. We don't know. So that takes a kind of equanimity and stability of mind and heart. And so this is why I'm saying this is not just expectation outcome or wishful thinking. There's a lot of skill that's involved in this to hold all of this complexity and fragility in a situation, you know, our life situation that is constantly changing and ambiguous. I
0: was wondering Valerie if you could comment a bit on the importance of those two paths. You're not the only Buddhist Quaker I know by any means and some of them have been really wonderful. I've had them as guests on Northern Spirit Radio before as well. In your first chapter of your book you called the name of the chapter Calling the Soul. I had the sense that there were Buddhist-rooted techniques, talents, insights, just immensely important ingredients for healing the world. But that there was something else about soul that needed to be added. And I saw your first comment I saw you related to that was mentioning Parker Palmer as well. That somewhere soul needed to be added to these other attributes. Could you talk a little bit about what soul means to you? A lot of people may or may not understand that Buddhism doesn't necessarily include any kind of what most Western religions call God, right? So some of the names that we have for things in religion and faith, they're looked at differently in Buddhism. Correct me when I'm wrong. Of course, I have a superficial understanding. But your book, Hope Leans Forward, helps me and others have a greater understanding.
1: Yeah, so this is the kind of dialogue within myself about these two great faith traditions, Buddhism and Quakerism. And many people have asked me about the connection, the intersection of Quakerism and Buddhism. In addition to the book, I wrote another Pendle Hill pamphlet on living from the center. It's called Living from the Center, and you can include all of these references in your show notes, And in which I talk a lot about how does mindfulness meditation relate to meeting for worship for example and what are the practices that connect buddhism and quakerism but specifically to this sense of soul and spirit and god so from a, a buddhist perspective we have you know this idea of self <laughs> this idea of the individual self is kind of a false idea we look at self as holding kind of two elements. There's the historical dimension of self, meaning I was born here, I was raised here, I had these parents, I lived this particular life. And we've been talking about my life from a historical dimension of self. But there is another dimension of self from the Buddhist perspective, and that's called the ultimate dimension of self, where there is no birth and there's no death. There's no after, there's no before, there's no coming, and there's no going. It is beyond that. And it's pointing to this notion of God, you know, where it is kind of beyond space and time, beyond language. And so I think when you're talking about self, it's important to, from a Buddhist perspective, to understand that, that you're talking about at least two dimensions of self. One is speaking about soul, the soul of a person. My sense is that we're touching the ultimate dimension beyond the physical body of an individual where the soul of the person can be touched. Their sense of the beingness. You know, it's like you walk into a bar, a physical location, a bar. You get a vibe, right? You walk into a mosque or a gurdwara or a synagogue or a church, there's a different vibe there. You walk into a Quaker meeting, there's a different vibe. And that's kind of the soul of the place. It's pointing toward the ultimate dimension. One of the
0: things you'll find, folks, in Hope Leans Forward is in addition to all of the the really wonderful dharma teaching that valerie brown does each chapter also includes it's not exactly a biography but it's stories it's, it captures some of the delightful identity and character and life story of a number of different people eli Tiscanero, i'm not sure how good my pronunciation is on that I, and uh, I'll be even more troubled with L- Loan Nguyen. I don't know how. How do you say that?
1: Loan Nguyen, yes.
0: And George Slakey is one of them.
1: Actually, I would also say Francisco Burgos, who is the executive director of Pendle Hill, is also featured in the book, as well as Ilana Kaufman. And she is the executive director of an organization called Jews of Color. So there are many wonderful people featured in the book.
0: Part of the practical lessons and experience of Hope Leans Forwards are these stories which are embedded in each chapter. And in each chapter, there's also practices like mindful breathing, deep listening, handling strong emotions. There's lessons with each chapter, and there's queries. And so Valerie Brown actually weaves together a rich amount of insight, experience, perspectives in every chapter. So it's not like you have to just read the book straight through, which I did because I'm a computer science physics major. But each chapter has these multi-hued ways of learning. Do you have teachers who taught you that way, or is this a Valerie Brown original?
1: (laughs) Well, again, thank you so much for the question. There are many teachers who I have learned from, including Ty. Ty says, uh, one good question benefits many people. You know, and as a coach, I trained at Georgetown University to become an executive coach. Questions are maybe even more important than whatever the answer is. So questions are are very, very important. Um, From a Quakerly perspective, we don't call them questions, but queries, which it's not necessarily anything, a right answer or wrong answer but really seeking within oneself, discerning where one feels led, right? Led by spirit. What is the direction that one is being led by spirit? And of course, in my training with Parker, I felt so lucky to have years and years studying with Parker. And Parker was really generous in writing a beautiful endorsement for two of my three books, as well as Ty. They both wrote beautiful endorsements. What I would say from Parker, of course, he is a master at the question, the art of the question. And so to have studied with Parker for years, I just have enormous, enormous gratitude for him. And he learned this, of course, from his teachers at Pendle Hill. And these were luminaries. You know, people like Douglas Steer was at Pendle Hill, And Desmond Tutu was at Pope Pendle Hood. And I could just go on and on with Henry Nowen. And these an amazing people who were teachers at Pendle Hill. So I feel very lucky to be part of that community.
0: Another place where it seems to me that you got considerable riches and in instruction was at Ghost Ranch, which is on the other end of the United States. You Say a few words about Ghost Ranch and, and what took you there, how you got your riches from that experience.
1: Well, if there is a place that is central in my heart, it is Ghost Ranch. I first went to Ghost Ranch in 1978. I was a college student and was completely clueless. I was working in Burger King and trying to make my way through college. And at the time I was going out with somebody who went to Albuquerque to go to summer school there. And he said, why don't you come out and see this place? And I felt like I went on the other side of the moon. It was so different from anything I'd ever experienced. And when I arrived in Albuquerque, I jumped on the back of his motorcycle and we tooled around Albuquerque and went up to Ghost Ranch and to Christ in the Desert and to Ojo Caliente and all of these places that were frequented by the painter George O'Keeffe. And I, of course, was clueless about all of this, but Ghost Ranch was a profound awakening for me to be One of my first true experiences of being awakened in nature, realizing that there was a natural world, you know, in contrast to chain link fence and concrete and big buildings in New York City, to be in the open sky and the desert, I was truly transformed and I couldn't go back. I knew something had deeply awakened in me and I will always, always be grateful even today i want part of my ashes to be spread at, at ghost ranch that's how meaningful and important that place is for me and i was just there this year you know even for a few days to go and to be in that land i feel every time i'm there that i'm i'm reborn again
0: I have to admit, folks, that I feel completely inadequate to convey so much of the depth and riches of Hope Leans Forward by Valerie Brown. I've tried to touch on some of the aspects that struck me as I read the book, and I appreciate, Valerie, that you take the time to talk with me about all those, the formation you had uh, Growing in Brooklyn and from the crises, the struggles, the challenging situations of your youth on forward, uh, going to Howard University, Georgetown, learning at Pendle Hill and Ghost Ranch, and then now being asked to teach at Harvard. I I think that's such a wonderful, I I don't know, crowning is the proper term for it, but it's such a rich outcome from so many of the learnings that you'll find in the book. Hope Leans Forward by Valerie Brown, folks. Again, thank you so much, Valerie, for coming through the suffering, finding a way to transmute it into something better, finding an answer to where is hope now for our society, for people, for the individuals that you deal with, and for joining us today for Spirit in Action.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. Again, all of this is is not for my own personal transformation, but... This is really about one person at a time transforming to create a better world that we all deserve.
0: So many of these resources you can find, including books and teachings, and all of this can be found via ValerieBrown.us, linked on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, along with all of our guests of the last 17 and a half years. We'll see you all again next week for Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel yeah. the echo of our